Welcome back to Embracing Death. I am your host, Julia Sheehan. Each week, I will be chatting with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with our own inevitable mortality. The subject of death can be really heavy and at times scary and can cause some intense emotions. But the whole point of the show is to create a place for people to share and relate to others so we can face our death with a little less fear and learn to embrace our eventual end. This week is very interesting. The guest is unlike any other guest I've had on the show before. Joe Ward has spent many years working in a field that so many of us have seen on some of the most popular TV shows. Joe shares with me what it's really like as a medical death investigator, how it's nothing like what we see on TV, how it affected his life, his beliefs about death, and how it has led him to a more holistic life. Please be advised that this week we talk about scenes of death. Some of these conversations might be triggering to some listeners. Please proceed with caution if you believe that these depictions might trigger you. Hello, my name is Joe Ward. I'm a medical legal death investigator. I'm currently in Illinois, which is where I serve that function. I am in the act of transition, uh, moving into a apothecary-based business that deals with spiritual healing as well as indigenous medicine practices. It's quite a road to get here. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with uh, where this path is taking me. So, Joe, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. I am excited to dive right into everything that is you, how you became a medical legal death investigator, that transition, what that job did to kind of your belief system, and then kind of where you are now. So we have a lot to get into. So let's dive right in. Absolutely. Um, I do want to, you know, thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. I have listened to each episode <laughs> so far that that you published has uh, been great hearing those different perspectives and I couldn't help as I'm listening to those to realize how my job function around death and in death investigations is kind of like the unseen bridge between each one of your episodes that you've had so far but yeah that's let's let's dive in so yeah how did I become a medical legal death investigator that's uh that also in itself is a transition um I served uh, in the military active duty for quite a few years, and I was a military police officer when I was in the Army. And during that time, um, I was constantly getting attached to other units. So I got through my military police academy and uh, knew during that time when I was doing traditional police functions that I really loved investigations. It wasn't the pulling people over or writing tickets um, that really excited me. It was the investigation, the who's done it, the clue finding. And that really helped me with my need for attention to detail, having been in the military. But I quickly got attached to a group, a special forces group, and I was quickly shipped off to the Republic of Panama, which was where we had a place called Fort Sherman. It's a jungle operations training center, and that's where our jungle expert school was um, up until like the late 90s. And being attached to that and being the only permanent party um, that was stationed there full time, you can't help but become integrated in with special forces groups, which is uh, quite intense, <laughs> to say the least. And to have the opportunity to go through the, the jungle school, which is extremely, extremely difficult. It was one of the toughest schools that we had back in the 90s. So think really Rambo stereotypical. 
Um, you're living in the jungle, sleeping in swamps, and everything out there can bite you or sting you or, you know, or kill you. You're eating bugs. It was really, uh, it was a bit more than what I thought I was getting into at the time, but that became who I was at the time. And I was looking for something that was just extreme. Um, when I came back from Panama, back to the United States, um, I was able to attend Arabic school, which at the time I thought was really cool because I didn't know anybody that spoke Arabic, not realizing that, hey, if Uncle Sam is going to send you to school, they're probably going to send you somewhere where you need to speak it. <laughs> and I was quickly attached to a cavalry scout unit that sent me over to the Sinai Desert, and I spent most of the remainder of my time in the Sinai Desert um, learning how to live in the desert from the Bedouin people that was there and how to survive there. So I went from one survival atmosphere in a jungle and working with what there was called the Kuna, which was the native peoples, to the Bedouins in the Sinai and realizing how it is that they're able to exist in such extreme climates, how they rely on mother nature for everything. And it didn't take very long before you realize for everything that was dangerous and scary that was out in mother nature, there was also something, if you knew what to look for, that would heal it, that would help it. And I started just unconsciously building that repertoire of knowledge of, wow, there's going to be an awesome balance. Well, I got to a point in my military career where I had not seen family because I was constantly being deployed. Um, I was married at the time and had two wonderful kids that I had not seen, but for, you know, a couple weeks here and there. So when the time was, came up to reenlist, uh, it was kind of put up, Hey, uncle Sam or us kind of a thing. So I got out and I knew that I really, I wanted something extreme. I wanted something intense. That was my mindset. That's how I, uh, seemed to function throughout the day. So since I'd had a past history in law enforcement, I'm like, you know what, let's, let's look at police departments, look at state police and sheriff's departments. And as I got into that research, because that's what I tend to do is research, 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 I, uh, I found out very quickly that the investigation aspect, you weren't likely to be able to do it. If you were lucky enough to be assigned to an investigative unit, you'd already spent 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years on patrol before you ever got there. And that just wasn't good enough for me. I wanted it right now and I wanted boots on the ground and jumping in. So researching and I saw that you could go and start off as a death investigator where you get assigned to like the coroner's office or a medical examiner's office. Um, most of the time, a coroner themselves are an elected official and a medical examiner is appointed. Um, usually neither one of the two are actually on a scene. <laughs> they send people out to handle those investigations. Um, I had some firefighting experience before I went into the army. I had some emergency medical experience. I worked as an EMT. I went to school to be a paramedic. And then I had the law enforcement from the military, which allowed me to enter the actual testing process because you needed to have two years of each of those fields to qualify. I uh, sat down, took a written exam, the normal testing, and got a call. They said, hey, we would like for you to, to come in. And it was all uphill <laughs> from there. Sounds like you've had just a lot of things that kind of you like that intense environment you like the the adrenaline i mean as an er nurse i i totally 
feel and I vibe with that because you know, you, you're the kind of person that you need high energy to feel like you're like accomplishing stuff. And so I think, you know, all of these things that go into how you found this career path, you know, and how you needed these backgrounds that you already had, I think it was kind of like the perfect fit. It, it was. And I've noticed that throughout my life, especially now that I don't consider myself an adrenaline junkie anymore. In fact, I consider myself the polar opposite. <laughs> I've had my fill of that glass, but I've noticed that there's always been something, whether I understood it at the time or not, that put me in a position to have me better equipped for where I am now and where I'm going. So yeah, it was. It, at the time, it was a perfect fit. To start off as a medical legal death investigator, there's a lot of training that goes into that. You're going to handle everything. And in a nutshell, what a death investigator does is determine the cause and manner of death. How someone died and why someone died, to kind of sum that up a little bit. In order to do that, You've got to be proficient in medicine as well as the legal aspects of who has what, who gets what, evidence collection, prosecution, that kind of thing. We had numerous trains that we would go to, so traffic crash investigation courses, homicide investigation, advanced homicide investigation, forensic osteology. I went and attended St. Louis University School of Medicine, their Department of Pathology, which is where you get your national board certification to be a medical legal death investigator. You take all of these, you'll take forensic photography, every single class and course that you can get into, you're taking to make sure that you know you're looking for everything and you're seeing what you need to see. And that's kind of the, the basis of what you need to have with you. What a medical legal death investigator would do, what I would do, is I would receive a phone call. That could be from a hospital, that could be from an ER nurse like yourself, it could be from a doctor. It could be from a hospice nurse. It could be from, most of the times it was a 911 dispatch center. And they would let me know that there was, they had found someone. And then I would go on, you know, arrive on scene. Once you would get there, we would process the scene. Now, most states are just like the state of Illinois where I operated. And in the time of an actual death, the coroner and or medical examiner assume all command. So it doesn't matter what police department or fire department or anything that you're from, once that person is determined to be deceased, the coroner <laughs> has has 100% say and that everything belongs to the coroner until they sign it back over to the family, which is something that I don't think a lot of people know about that aspect is that you and your property at the time that you were pronounced now become property to include yourself and has to be assigned to someone to sort of process everything and become that bridge to the funeral home, to the family, that kind of thing. But you would arrive on scene and we would automatically, you start to survey it. You're going to take pictures everywhere. Back in the early 2000s, the CSI show um, was extremely popular and everybody was coming out of the woodwork. I want to be a CSI. I want to be a CSI. <laughs> That's nothing about that show was how things actually are obviously don't break my heart because that i always love that stuff where they're like collecting hairs and like doing the fingerprint sticky thing and <laughs> all of those things but i think a lot of tv is um not accurate in any realm especially watching hospital shows i'm like what are you doing so i i get it from that aspect where you're watching it you're like this is not real yeah it was it was entertaining i couldn't watch it with friends and family because i would sit there and nitpick yeah that's not what we do that's not what we do <laughs> 
That's what I do with um, hospital shows. I'm like, we would never do that. Like, what are they doing? So, yeah. Yeah, we would uh, arrive on scene, assume command of the scene, talk with whoever happened to be the first responding officer or EMTs that happened to be there, find out, hey, how did you get the call? What did you see when you got here? Don't let anybody in, that kind of thing. And he would photograph everything from top to bottom and get a feel, almost like an energetic feel. Does this feel right? Does it feel wrong? Try to use a little bit of intuition initially. Does that feeling of right and wrong come with experience or is it something that you found you kind of had already? I had. You had it. Okay. (laughs) Um, It did. You were able to fine tune it with experience, but I did feel like it was a bit of a natural fit for me. If you just walked in, it's like something bad happened here and I haven't even seen where the body is yet. It's just something is off. Yes. And you would collect whatever it was. If something was out of place, you would photograph it, you would bag it, and get to the body. Once you got to the body, you would photograph everything, which means that you're, as an individual, you are seeing someone in a a horrific state most of the time. It's just, it obviously doesn't look natural because they're no longer there. Getting all of that process in your head on a personal, on a humanity level, and then realizing, oh, hey, I'm here for an actual job. I need to focus on that. I don't have time to think, oh, wow, uh, I knew that person. Or that looks like I did not want to see that. (laughs) It was a a bit of a a task. And I don't know that you truly get used to it. You just kind of callous over, so to speak. Just like some of the gruesome natures and the state of people, especially if maybe... It's like a wellness check and no one's seen granny in a month or so and now they've decayed and just seeing, you know, our vessel in a in a non-human way can be really jarring. As a as a death investigator, the worst words that I wanted to hear, since I wanted to hear, was a neighbor called in for a smell. Yeah. Oh, the bugs. Yep. <laughs> the maggots and stuff. It- that, I mean, that's a natural part as you begin the decomposition process. Um, that there's going to be bug activity, entomology, forensic entomology. And as horrible as that may sound, from a answering question standpoint, from a forensic standpoint, it gives us so much information that we need to have to be able to piece things together. So if justice needs to be served at a later point in time, we have that with us. So it's, it's like it's, it has to be there. Um, Or there would be unanswered questions for us. If there's unanswered questions for me, then there's unanswered questions for the family. Collection of anything and everything around the body and checking it. So there's a different type of body that is presented to an emergency room where you would see them. There's a difference in how they would be presented to a funeral home whenever they get there. Um, Or even in a hospice setting. There's stuff that's in between that that's not usually cleaned up, and that's what a medical legal death investigator, that part of their bridge, is going into the worst part and then getting them cleaned up and sent somewhere else or transferred to a funeral. There's things that we'll check. So with the body, I don't know how much you want to get into what happens, especially if you're, well, if you're walking in and a loved one or a family member or a friend um, you know, you stop in to see granny and it's been a couple months since you've stopped in and then realize that she is deceased. There's things that you're going to see 
that are going to not be pleasant to view. It's not going to be pleasant to smell. Um, some of the sounds are not going to be pleasant to hear, but that's a natural part of the death, the physical death process of the human body. Knowing that things are going to tighten up, things are going to release. Um, our body is made up of so much water and so much oil that when we're no longer pumping fluid, our heart's not pumping, that turns back into its original state of water and oil. We start to swell. Um, as a nurse, you know that you have three layers of skin, uh, your dermis, epidermis, and subcutaneous. Those three layers become three separate layers over time. So it that sounds gross, it looks gross, but if I don't know who that person is, that's a way for me to take and do a fingerprint from. It's like a rubber glove that you would use in the exam room. So there's wonderful uses. I try to blend that with that balance with nature. It's horrific, but yet it does give me an opportunity to find out who is this person. Because in most cases, you can't look at them and tell if they're even male or female, um, that alone exactly who they are, or if they match a driver's license photo that you found on the bed stand. I think this is what the, a lot of the fear is of finding people dead is because a person that you recognize, you cannot recognize them. And so it becomes traumatizing to see a human form that you knew and loved no longer looking like that. And I think a, a really important thing is to learn to understand that those things are going to happen. So if you see them, it's not as traumatizing because as you and I know, desensitization is something that can happen, you know, when you're seeing people in, in this way. So I think it's, you know, people just need to realize that it is a natural part of the decomposition process and it's not to be feared. Yes, it can be kind of not pleasant to see, but it is natural and it is part of, you know, being an organic material. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you help identify, you're starting to process the scenes. Keep going. This is super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first thing I'm going to do as I approach a body after I've taken all the photographs, you don't touch anything until it's all been documented with photography. So that that's something that cracks me up if I happen to watch a crime scene TV show and they reach down, pick something up, put it back down, then take a picture of it. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> that's not good. It's going to wreak havoc whenever you end up in court it someday. But I'm going to look for those, those body changes because that starts to establish a timeline. The first thing I want to know whenever I get there is how long have they been here? When did the death occur? How can I start to narrow down that window? And the first thing I would check is a jaw. I would put my thumb on the chin and try to move the jaw within about the first hour. Now there's environmental factors, metabolism, obesity. Is it hot? Is it cold? There's things that can speed up or slow down um, a little bit, but still you're in that wonderful range of about an hour or a little more. Um, the jaw will start to stiffen up a little bit. So if I get there and the jaw is still really loose, then they haven't been there for more than an hour. If I get there and the jaw is, I know that they at least died more than an hour ago because I want to establish that time frame. That way, I if it turns back that 
someone else might have been involved or someone else might have been there. It lets me establish that time frame of, hey, well, actually, when you were there, they would have already been deceased when you checked on them. So perhaps we need to talk a little bit more in depth <laughs> about your involvement here. You're going to check the normal stuff to make sure that they actually are deceased, even though they visually look like it. Um, you still have to do your medical procedure, check for a pulse, check for respirations and make sure that they are, in fact, um, deceased. And all my time as a death investigator and all the people I know that work in death investigations, never have I heard of an actual, oh, they weren't really they weren't really dead. So I know some people I've talked to have a fear of that. Well, what if I'm pronounced and I'm not really dead? That's not happened in my experience ever. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah, in the Middle Ages, I guess people would get buried alive because they would misconstrue like comas and, and you know, unconsciousness as death. They used to put bells with a string into people's coffins. So in case they woke up, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, Steve's still alive. We've got to go dig him up. But yeah, that's a, I, that's a very implausible. But. Yeah, that's where the, uh, the terminology graveyard shift came from. Because people would get hired to walk around the cemetery just to listen for a bell ring. How terrifying. <laughs> that is terrifying. So you make sure they're dead. They're dead. Check that. There's different stages of the decomposition process. So you'll have lividity, the, the pooling of blood. You're going to see where they look like they're sunburnt really bad, like a dark purple sunburnt. If you look at the body, it doesn't look natural, obviously. But what that does is that tells me whether or not they've been moved or if they died in that position. Once your heart stops pumping, automatically your body does something different. Gravity alone will cause the blood to flow to the lowest level. And if you're sitting down when you happen to pass away, which actually does happen quite a bit, your legs and your hips and everything will be a dark purplish red from the blood pooling, but yet your actual buttocks will be bleach white because there's pressure there that didn't allow the blood to actually come through. So you can look and tell, even if they've been moved later, that this, uh, this individual has been moved. So it looks really weird. That's something to expect. It happens to everyone. Um, just depends on what time frame that you're seeing the body. That is wonderful answers and clues to me to know whether or not that's actually where they were or not where they were. That lividity and pooling, once the heart stops, is also crucial for me to find out and track injuries. So if you get cut on your hand or your arm or your leg or your face while you're living and breathing, you'll bleed. And hopefully you will start to clot and that starts the healing process for that injury that you have. Once your heart stops pumping blood to that area, you don't bleed. So if there's a cut that's there that has no blood, it's just a pinkish white tissue, that lets me know that that occurred post-mortem. That injury happened long after um, they had stopped breathing. And lets me know also in traumatic deaths, um, you know, this they lived through this, lived through this, this one they were already dead for. And it helps me to also narrow down the time frame and kind of get into the mind, if this is a homicide, get into the mind of the killer because I need to also not just determine the cause, but the manner, why this happened. It's not my job as a death investigator to prosecute the actual bad person that, that's responsible for it. It's my job to find out what they died from and why they died from it. That being said, if a coroner or medical examiner does not determine the death to be a homicide, a police department and state's attorney or prosecutor cannot prosecute someone for homicide if a coroner said it wasn't one. 
So that's also something a lot of people don't know. If the coroner medical examiner rules it something different, it cannot be overturned in any court. The coroner or medical examiner has to go and change their manner of death. I have a quick question on that. So we see in some some people, some cases where somebody dies and maybe the family or friends or, or some third party thinks that it's a malicious death, it, it's a murder, and it's you somehow ruled a suicide or an accident. Is there specific signs and cues? I know each thing is different, each scene is different, but is there... Do you ever find that it's like hard to fi- to figure out whether or not it was a murder versus an accident or suicide? No. Every once in a while, you might be a little unsure. It's very, very rare. And that's why we have a manner of death called undetermined. It's like it could be a suicide. It could be a homicide. But there's just not that crucial piece of evidence. There's not a note. There's not a weapon. Um, it's not like that. But in most cases, yes, you can. We dive in to that individual, the decedent, into that person's life from top to bottom. So if there's ever been any, let's say, uh, a suicide versus a homicide, I had a case that that got called into question where family members um, thought that for sure the boyfriend had something to do with it. Um, And that's just not what the scene showed. It was a firearm gunshot and it was actually ruled a suicide and the family was all upset. No, I think it was the other guy. I think it was the other guy. Now you can do stuff like testing for GSR. I'm sure anybody that's watched CSI uh, has heard about GSR gunshot residue. Here's the thing about GSR. Anyone in the vicinity is going to test positive. It's a positive negative test. So if you say, hey, I wasn't even at that house when that happened and you test positive, well, yes, you were. But that doesn't tell me that you're the one that fired the weapon. It doesn't even tell me that you were within six feet of the individual. It just tells me you were at that house or you were in that area and that smoke, that residue from the firearm got on you somehow. So it's not a conclusive test to say, oh, you're the trigger man. It does tell me that uh, you're lying to me about not being there because the GSR says that you were actually there. Both individuals obviously tested positive for GSR. They had heard that he had tested positive for GSR and still thought for sure because it was a very strange relationship as many relationships have gotten. For us, there was not a suicide note in that case, which is usually something that, you know, helps lead you into a suicide ruling direction. But it was the forensics that helped. So if you fire a a pistol, a firearm, um, this was a semi-automatic one, so it slides back. It doesn't look like a John Wayne type revolver for listeners that aren't familiar with the types of handguns. If you are alive and you fire that, the strength in your your arm, your wrist, your hand allows that top slide to go back into place, which then brings up the next round. If you die, this is instantaneous. Within a millisecond, if you die firing that weapon, you get what we call limp-wristed. There's not enough strength to hold that recoil, so that little slide that will come back will stay back partway. You can't fake that. You can't get a weapon. You can't manipulate it physically to make it look like that. That only happens if someone shot themselves with a semi-automatic firearm. So 
in that case, the forensics and the autopsy we did showed there wasn't any other trauma. Also, there wasn't any bruising. There wasn't any lacerations. There wasn't any what we call petechial hemorrhaging, which are if you're strangled or choked or fighting for air, the blood vessels in your eyes will pop. So if you come across a loved one and you look at their eyes and see they've got tons of red dots, just the worst blood shot that you could ever imagine. That's something that we look at because that tells me that that was an awful lot of pressure in their head to cause that to pop and make those little tiny red dot blisters. So that's something that you may end up seeing. That's also a natural part of that process and helps to answer questions and get to justice uh, if that needs to happen in that case. Um, but in that case, yes, it was limp wristed. So it was, it was easy to tell that, nope, it's impossible. It is physically impossible to manipulate a firearm like that. Um, doesn't matter if you know what you're doing, you just can't. It only occurs in that one weird instance where somebody done it. And the family still did not want to accept it, but there wasn't really a whole lot of choice. So it didn't matter how many times you try to explain it. That's something that you, I also realized that you can't ever get away from this career. So though I don't actively work as a medical legal death investigator now, I've moved on to other things in my life and past, you get called back for these things. So you could have another family member. You could have a grandkid or a son or a daughter or a stepkid or a brother or sister that comes in and 10, 15, 20 years later decides, hey, you know what? I don't think grandpa actually died of natural causes. I think grandpa was poisoned. I think grandma put something in his in his eggs or his tea in the morning or coffee. If they then go get an attorney, they're going to pull that case back up. I get another subpoena to go back and sit down and relive that case all over again. So you're going to have to read all your notes, look at all the photos, research all the evidence so that you're fresh with it. Do you keep all of your old files and stuff? I don't keep it. Wherever that death occurred, whoever had jurisdiction, you know, that county or that state, they keep that. And then once they get notified that, hey, somebody wants that case filed because there's a deposition or they want to do a wrongful death lawsuit, or perhaps someone is in jail and they're coming up for parole, or maybe there was two or three people involved. And now all of a sudden they found the driver to the car or shooter number two. Um, they get notified and then I get a subpoena and I go back to that office and then pull my, my files from there. But yeah, I don't keep anything. Um, I wouldn't want that responsibility <laughs> at all. And I wouldn't want that. It'd feel like a, a glooming cloud of darkness. Yeah. So I, I do want to touch briefly on identification. So <clears throat> I know you said that fingerprinting is one way and you'll take, you know, the deceased person's finger and help with that. What other ways? I know that dental records are important as well. What is there any any atypical type of identification methods that you've used in the past? First things for, I mean, if I can get a photo ID and they still look like their photo ID, then that's going to be the easiest way. Sometimes we will still have family members, hey, can you verify that? But that's not very often because I don't want family members to remember that vision of their loved one, if at all possible. I'd like to remove them from that emotional and psychological baggage if possible. Um, the fingerprints is always going to be there. We can do DNA. There's wonderful ways to extract uh, DNA. There's also, um, you mentioned the, the dental records. We have forensic odontology. 
So I actually had a case where a lady had been missing for quite some time, and we had found some remains. They weren't full. They were just partial um, that was buried, and we had a section of the jawbone. We thought we knew it was this lady, so we had an idea, and I took the jawbone and took the dental records of who I believed it would be to a forensic odontologist. Everything I do has to have the word forensic in front of it. I can't go to the normal dentist or orthodontist that you would see for a cleaning or for a root canal. I have to go to a forensic one because only they can testify in court as an actual expert in that case. In which case, they're going to compare that jaw or that tooth and compare it to the, the dental record and say, yes, I can confirm that is, in fact, the that individual. You're able to identify these people. Is there anything else that you, we haven't touched on that is a kind of a process of, of what a death investigator does? Or have we kind of touched on most of it? After the, the identification, that can sometimes take quite a bit of time trying to track things down, but notification. So sometimes other people will assume that role. In Illinois, it is the death investigator's job to do that. Every case not involving a hospital or a home death under hospice, uh, it is my job to go and knock on the door in the middle of the night and inform people of that. That's a lot of baggage to have to do that every single day. During my time, I investigated over 2,000 deaths, and I attended and assisted in over 400 autopsies. As a death investigator, I see every person that dies, whether it's a geriatric death, a cancer death, a shooting, a stabbing, an axe murder, a fire, a traffic crash, um, a, a hanging, it, everything. Everything, a surgical death, they die on the surgical table. I would still have to go in and make sure that, yes, one, they are dead. And two, is there anything that happened that caused this death right now, which is where like a death certificate comes in. If anyone has seen a death certificate, you'll have a cause of death. And then you got two or three other lines down below it, like A, B, and C. And those are due to or as a consequence of. So it could be something, I'll use a specific example. There was a uh, an elderly gentleman that I got called for that was outside of a hospital and he had fallen in the crosswalk and was dead. Right there in the crosswalk. Wasn't hit by a car. Um, he just happened to trip and fall and was dead. So I get there, realized that the actual cause of death was what we called a subdural hematoma which is a brain bleed. Why he had that subdural hematoma was due to a fall. So that would go under my second line. He had had a hip replacement before, something totally unrelated, and was put on blood thinners for that so that he didn't have clots that would cause him to die. Well, because he tripped and fell at the crosswalk, his body was not able to clot at the proper amount that it needs to. So a small bump on the head caused him to have a major bleed that then causes death. Well, that's what I'm going to put down on those other existing due to or as a consequence lines so that that is listed down as due to blood thinners, due to a previous fall, and allows you to track all that stuff back. That also means that then you're not showing proof or trying to point in a direction of some other medical care because that happens a lot. Um, it's my job to go through if someone dies in a nursing home or in a hospital is to find out, um, is the doctor responsible? Is the nurse responsible? 
and go through the physician notes, go through the nurse's notes and make sure did the doctor order what he should have? Did the nurse actually give what the doctor said to go? And we will actually spend all day, all night, multiple days going over all these, what I call chicken scratches. I mean, you know how doctors write it's, <laughs> it's Yeah. Documentation in the hospital is, is hard to sift through. It is horrible. Um, there was one case, it was a nursing home death. Um, and the lady was not able to be mobile. So she was pretty much bed bound and get what's called bed sores. You know what bed sores are over time. I mean, there's a a physician will put in that they have to be turned so often a bed sore can get bad. It starts to turn into an ulcer and then you've got a decubitus ulcer and then you've got stages of how bad that is. Well, as it gets to each stage, there should be another level of medical care. Are we doing wound vacs and stuff like that? What kind of stuff are we giving them for infection? And all the normal wound care that you know, if I come in and see that someone died from what's called sepsis or septicemia, it's where your body just has so much infection in it, it's done. It can't operate and heal itself anymore. It throws in the towel. See that they are septic because of a stage four decubitus ulcer that's on their back. Well, how did that get to a stage four? I'm going to want to see, did the doctor look over all those notes? Did they happen to say, turn them every hour, every two hours, clean it for this, do for this. And then I'm going to look at the nurse's notes and make sure, did a nurse sign off saying that they did this and they did that. The person's been in the hospital for three weeks. They were admitted with the stage one. How in three weeks did they go from stage one to stage four? Hitting that. So not always did doctors and nurses necessarily like people like me because it it uh, it points fingers in directions that as a whole, everyone is just trying to do their best and do their job. We're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. Um, but it was my job to find the smallest little mistake because that did. Were the Would the person have passed away anyway? And de- Absolutely, they would have. I mean... Once we're born, our time clock turns and we start to lose grains of sands every second. However, I have to determine whether or not did they die at that very point in time on their own or if the doctors and nurses at that facility had done everything that they were supposed to, would they have maybe had another day? Nurses and doctors don't don't like hearing that, but even in our job, there has to be a higher level of accountability because lives are literally at stake. And um, as a nurse, I know what it's like to have someone come in from a facility that has a unstageable pressure sore that goes the whole way through to their pelvis and it's just bone and they're on a sand bed there, you know, we're giving them just we're packing their wounds. It's absolutely horrifying to see somebody who's experiencing that, especially when they're like lucid and they know and they can they can feel the pain. Um, So I understand that and holding, you know, medical personnel accountable is kind of coming to the forefront of uh, the news recently with a lot of things happening in that aspect. But um, I do think it's important that you're not out to hurt people. You're just out to get answers. And that's that's really the whole point is to just gather information and, and provide what you found. So I mean, we all need doctors and nurses. And I certainly don't, you know, if I'm ever in a hospital, don't want to come across a nurse that you know, happen to get reprimanded or lose her license or get fined because of an accident. Um, I mean, once again, we're talking about accidents and not malicious behavior. Yeah, you're not Nurse Jackie or, or doctor. Is it Dr. Kevorkian? That is something that as a death investigator that I constantly had to deal with in hospitals with hospital deaths, especially with terminal patients that weren't necessarily on hospice yet, 
was going to be considered. Usually here in Illinois, um, for someone to get put on hospice means that a physician is saying they have six months or less to live. Then they get put on hospice care. Doesn't mean they're going to be there for the full six months. They could be there for 24 hours or only a couple hours. Lots of times I would get a call from a hospice nurse because I would still have to go out. So that's something that if you have a family member that is on hospice, um, someone like me, an investigator is still going to come out to the scene and check and take possession of the body, get information, um, collect any medical history, because I still will need to talk with the, their actual doctor. Did they die from this? This is what you said. And what do I see at the scene? Did they die from that at the scene? Was there foul play? Was there a family member hoping to get some, collect on some insurance? Was the hospice nurse not necessarily on the up and up and gave too much medication at the time? Um, but during that, we have here what's called the Hemlock Society. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a group of medical professionals, doctors and nurses that believe in like Dr. Kevorkian's theories and they would rather do assisted suicides. So they will give them information and show them how to do that. There's a, a book. Um, I won't say the title of the book because people jump out and start buying it. Uh, I can tell you that if I ever got to a death scene and it felt like deja vu, like, hey, I've read this somewhere, I would go and look at their bookshelf. And sure enough, I would find this specific book on the bookshelf. And then you start to talk with the doctor like, all right, they didn't die right then and there from their medical conditions. That was kind of coerced because they wanted to go on their own terms. That's another battle that I as a death investigator had because from a legal standpoint, from my job, I had to see it as one way. But from a humanity standpoint, I would want to go on my own terms, I would want to go in the bed. I, you know, I wouldn't want to extend this out for another three months being miserable the whole time. So it's, it's a, it's an ethical and a moral and a legal mess. What we believe is moral and ethical isn't always legal. So like there are states that have implemented um, physician assisted suicide, like the state of Oregon. Unfortunately, you have to go through those channels and make sure that your state has that legalized or you have the authority to do that or else it will be considered negligence on the medical provider's side so if you want to kill yourself if you have a terminal illness and you're looking at physician assisted suicide maybe it's time to start looking at your uh, legislation of your state and whether or not your doctor's going to go to jail for helping you yes absolutely absolutely and in in illinois specifically um their definition of homicide is the death of one person by another. And it's pretty much that black and white. That would be considered homicide. That would be a homicide. Unless you give them the information and they do it themselves. But then that could be, you could be an accessory to, you know. You can be an accessory to it. So now you're looking at prison time, everything else, when at the end of it, were they just trying to do the right thing? Yeah. And they were going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. And this person was just trying to facilitate their death. So... I do want to kind of go back to the autopsy thing, because as a emergency nurse, I we have patients that come in as, you know, we, they turn into comfort measures only where they're going to go home on hospice or they pass away in the emergency department and maybe they were DNR, DNIs, and it's not unexpected. It happens. And then we we always have to talk to the doctor and say, are we prepping the patient for autopsy or not? Will there be an autopsy or not? 
So can you tell me a little bit about, because not every person that dies gets an autopsy. Who Who is the kind of um, people that would be, you know, would get an autopsy as opposed to not, if we can touch on that? And, and once again, I'm going to refer to Illinois, but I know um, I've worked with a lot of other death investigators and other medical examiners and coroners from other states. Um, I belong to the Illinois Coroner Medical Examiners Association, and we're linked to a lot of other states also with their associations. Um, so as far as autopsies are concerned, one, a coroner or medical examiner can order it. Even if the family doesn't want to? If they deem it necessary. Yes, even if the family doesn't want to. Um, if I deem it necessary to determining the cause and manner of death, they will get an autopsy. It doesn't matter what that county's finances are. If your local government can afford a $20,000 autopsy bill, they have to provide it if I order it. It doesn't matter about a religious belief. There's some religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs that they don't want the body harmed or mutilated after death. If it looks like a homicide or suicide or something where I need to document this or I need to actually know specifically what they died from, I can't tell from looking at them. I need to be able to expose and examine. They're going to get an autopsy. I'm going to take them with me. We're going to do a forensic autopsy. Now, I don't know what videos are out there, what people know. Um, usually I come across someone that's like, oh, I saw an autopsy once when I was in medical school. That's a cadaver. Yeah, I've never seen one. I've seen, you know, cadaver like anatomy and stuff. But I mean, on TV, you see like the chest wall pinned open. And, you know, is it a full body autopsy or do you do do you start with like a, you know, it looks like there's a head trauma. So we're going to do just like the head or, you know, kind of go into what a forensic autopsy is. Every, every forensic autopsy is a full body autopsy. Um, we're going to collect everything. We're going to collect fingernails and anything under the fingernails. We're going to collect hair. We're going to do swabbing. Um, toxicology is going to get taken. And I, I usually talk with young kids about this that are having some problems with drugs or they're worried about drug tests and that kind of stuff. And like if something were to happen, especially in this day and age where so many things are laced with fentanyl and stuff like that, um, there's no over-the-counter, I'm going to drink apple cider vinegar, whatever that they come up with, that's going to get that stuff out of your system for me. For a hospital drug test, a 10 panel, um, a urinalysis, maybe, maybe it will. I'm going to draw the urine so that I can test it. I'm going to draw cardiac blood so that I can test it. And I'm going to dry the, I'm going to draw the best forensic liquid that the human body has to offer. And only I can draw. You can never draw for any other drug testing when they're alive. What's that? Vitreous humor, your eyeball fluid. Oh, like in your eyeball? In your eyeball. I thought our eyeballs were solid. Are they filled with fluid? <laughs> no. Oh, no. And they're filled with fluid. New fear unlocked. Oh, my gosh. My eye is a water balloon. <laughs> yes, it is a water balloon. Now I'm going to have nightmares, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> so you draw out the whole eyeball fluid. Okay. <laughs> Everything goes into that. And it, it allows me to run a toxicology. So I can tell if you smoked a cigarette and what the metabolites of that. Every drug... Uh, breaks down into a metabolite, into something else. It's parent drug. So nicotine over an hour in the human body breaks down into cottonine. And that lets me see when I look at your toxicology report that, oh, okay, well, 
they were out smoking an hour before. So it helps me to also establish timelines where you were, what you're doing, and who may or may not have been with you. Why is this not on CSI? This is the coolest thing I've ever, this is the coolest thing. You draw the eyeball fluid and you can time out any metabolite. Like this, okay, we're creating a new show. You're going to write it and it's just going to be you drawing out eyeball fluid on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. This is so interesting to me. So yeah, we, we will draw that. So those three things will go. That will also give me another timeline because there's things that are in your urine that after a few days, couple weeks, aren't in your urine. They're in your, your heart blood, your cardiac blood, because that's where everything's going to pool. So that should be the richest place of toxicology for me once you are pronounced is in the cardiac. I know this was like a when we were kids to keep us from doing like LSD and mushrooms and all of that, our, our whoever was authority figure would say, if you do a uh, psychedelic, the only way they can test for it is through your like cerebral spinal fluid. Do you know anything about that or do you know how to test for psychedelic? Like, is there a drug test for that or is that just kind of off the radar? Your vitreous humor. So you can also test for psychedelics through your <laughs> yeah. eyeball juice. Okay. Yes. Wow. Okay, good yeah. to know. But yeah, okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, that's not something that can be tested, obviously, if you're alive because we need our eyes. So So if you, you cannot draw from your eyeball at all alive, there's no, they haven't figured that out yet. No, it, it'll collapse your eyeball. It really is like a a water balloon. So you pop it, it's done. You can't refill it up with fluid and then like sew the eye shut. What kind of, what, what is the, do you know what the components of the fluid are? Is it like glucose? Is it protein? Is it? I don't. I'm going to do some, I'm going to deep dive. <laughs> Other than it is a gigantic list of things that you've taken 10 years ago. If you took it once, there's going to be a trace of it in your eye. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Keep going. I am going to dive into a whole wormhole about vitreous fluids. <laughs> so those are fluids that are going to be taken. Um, fingernail clippings, hair sample, swabs. You're going to follow a standard list for a forensic autopsy because you don't want to go in thinking, well, I'm processing this as a gunshot wound homicide and then leave something and find out that, oh, wow, this person was actually sexually assaulted. So everything is going to get swabbed. Your mouth is going to get swabbed. Your genitalia is going to get swabbed. Everything is going to get swabbed. That's going to get packed up. That gets sent off for testing to find out if there's any other fluids or if there's anything that's in there that should not be in there. Um, everything is going to get open from the top of your ear to the other top of the ear. That skin is going to get peeled back so that we can expose the skull because we need to remove the skull so that we can get to your brain and get the brain out. Everything that gets removed is photographed and everything that gets removed as an organ gets weighed. And that lets us know whether or not it's swollen. Um, and each thing that comes out will be dissected. It's going to look like, you know, some Pico de Gallo stuff by the time that you're done. But that allows us to also check with texture because that's big. So someone is a alcoholic and they've developed cirrhosis of the liver. On an autopsy table, that liver is going to sound like crunchy macaroni, uncooked pasta. And it's going to look like uncooked pasta in there. And that's guaranteed cirrhosis of the liver. That's hardening in there. Those are things that's all going to get dissected, 
slides. So we'll take a small little slice of every organ. That's going to go under a microscope so we can look at what's called histology and find out is there a disease? Is there some process in there that we can't see with the human eye or can't see if something is enlarged like uh, a heart, a cardiomegaly? That we can see whenever we weigh everything. You can also, we're looking for blockages when it comes to the cardiac system. We're looking for clots anywhere in the lungs or in any of your artery. That's stuff that we're going to find during the autopsy. So from ear to ear, that skin is going to get cut open so that we can expose and examine the skull. On the chest, yep, you have the traditional Y incision. I think anyone that's ever Googled autopsy knows um, you have a traditional Y incision that's opened up so that we can see the ribs and see if there's any broken ribs. Is there damage? Is there bruises, contusions, anything that is there? And then the ribs will be removed so that we can get to all the internal organs. All the internal organs are going to come out, get weighed, photographed, dissected, and a slide's going to be saved for each organ in histology. That's going to happen all the way down. So you are pretty much looking at everything. Everything. You're just looking at, do you look at every organ? Every organ. Every organ. Wow. Okay. So you do the autopsy, you notify, I mean, it seems like, I don't want to say this, but are you the Grim Reaper? I have felt like the Grim Reaper multiple times. Yeah, you're the Illinois Grim Reaper because if death, if it's death related, you're there, right? So Right. Every death. Wow. What? You've seen probably more death than anyone like I've ever met or talked to because death is was pretty much your job. And it, was. it wasn't just like mortician where you see the vessel, you get them prepped. It's like you're in the throes in the bowels of the death process. How did seeing death every day affect you long-term, short-term? How did you compartmentalize every day? How did you handle this career? Well, um, I don't know that I handled the career. I think the career handled me for the most part. Um, as, we're, as we're talking about an autopsy and the death, it, I'm, I'm curious of what mental picture that people put in their heads as I'm describing this autopsy. Are you focusing an adult male, uh, adult female, um, a grandma, a grandpa? I'm envisioning a gray, like 35-year-old guy who just looks like he was like working on Wall Street. That's my. That's what I envision. I don't know. The, the reality is, is that every death that needs to be documented or that have questions about is going to get autopsy. To include a newborn, a toddler, a teenager, and it's extremely difficult to have kids of your own and be looking at a two-month-old as you're pulling everything out of them and then go home and hug your own kids. You have to disconnect or you're going to look at that autopsy decedent and picture your son or picture your daughter or picture your spouse. Or just think it could be them one day and, and think of the horrifying things that could happen to them and it just becomes a spiral. And and that that happens. I can't tell you how many times I would go to a grocery store and be standing in line um, somebody wouldn't have enough change. I would, you know, cause I'm that guy. Um, Hey, let me uh, get the tab. How much are you short? That kind of thing. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Shake your hand. They go out the, the door two days later, I'm getting called and they died in a car accident. Maybe you are the grim reaper. <laughs> I just saw this guy. Do you live in a small town that this, do you live in a town small enough where this was frequent, where you would, 
you knew you knew a lot of the decedents? No, um, there's a lot of small towns surrounding, um, but no, I mean the town where my office was um, is in the middle of the state. It's about two hours south of Chicago, and it's where the University of Illinois is. There's hundreds of thousands of people here, and because there's not many board certified medical legal death investigators, you tend to work for other municipalities and counties also. You're bound to see someone you know. Yeah. Yes. So I could have a gang involved shooting that happened outside Chicago for whatever reason, Cook County was booked up and they would send someone to the hospital that was here because it's a level one trauma center. It doesn't matter where everything occurred or where they're from, where they're pronounced is who has jurisdiction. So if you travel on vacation, something happens wherever you're pronounced, that's who has jurisdiction. So you could you could have a, a gangland shooting that came straight from Chicago, and then literally 15 minutes after that, as you're still trying to snap photos in an emergency room, you're getting a motor vehicle horse and buggy fatality because there's an Amish community that's two hours south of me, but they got life flighted, flown into the hospital because it's level one trauma center. So you see a wide array of all kinds of things. But it's tough for family because death knows no holiday. It doesn't know a specific time. It's not going to, you know, stop because, hey, it's Christmas Eve, so nobody's going to die tonight. It's not going to matter if the weather is inclement. There's a snowstorm. There's a tornado. There's an earthquake. You have to be there. And then with that, you have mass casualty incidents, bus crashes, plane crashes. And now you've got multiple bodies that you've got to go with as well as multiple homicides, you have multiple bodies that you have to go with. It's that's it's It was impossible for me to have a close relationship with my family and with my kids and do what I needed to do. Even as an ER nurse, I, you know, I feel the heavy weight of just the intensity of it at times. And so as a travel nurse, I get to take time off and go live my life where I'm not constantly being clouded by, you know, what I see every day. But for you, you did this for years and years and years. Eventually, you you left the career. Tell me a little bit about why and, and what kind of things led up to that. Well, um, I had gotten to a point where I had, I would get off of work, off of a shift. And there was times I would work 70 some hours straight. You know, that doesn't know a time. So I would get a phone call or have a, a radio go off and it would be 3 a.m. And I just got to bed at 2.45. So here I am trying to determine what's going on over the phone, where I need to be, what stuff I need to grab, and I've had no sleep in the last three days. That's just not sustainable. It's just not. Even for me that thought I was, you know, Mr. Tough Guy, that's just not sustainable. If I would get off work, some of the scenes were so horrific that I would pull in the driveway, not even walk in and say, hey, I'm home, or give anyone a hug and a kiss, I would grab a boat and just go sit out in the lake for four or five hours watching the sunset, just trying to process, how do I get this out? How do I remove my personal emotions so that I can do a clear, concise, non-biased investigation? You would turn off your emotions to do your job, which as a nurse, I've I've been there where you can't look at the infant that's dying from SIDS and you have to keep, you have a job to do. So you have to disassociate your emotions from that. Was there a point where after you left the career, those things were still happening to you? Or, you know, was it because you didn't want to have to disassociate? Like, 
what what specific things like did you notice about that compartmentalization of of your emotions like was it before you left um the death investigation realm i had just started to notice that um I, you know if i had time as like you know what after today i just want to hold my little boy and would come back sorry if i get emotional here <laughs> that's okay and that was all i wanted to do at the end of a very tragic day and i would come back and they were gone they were off doing something else and it only took a couple of those instances before i realized that wow i've really lost who i am as a father or as a spouse because i was so concerned about my mission and realizing how much of that from my military days that is always about the mission. Uh, without a mission, I would struggle. And I had just kept throwing myself in and taking pride. And even other death investigators, I mean, I was referred to as the shit magnet. So if it could happen, it was going to happen when I was on duty. <laughs> that was just how it was. Somebody could go and have their entire two-day shift, and they only had four deaths. And my first 12 hours, I had 20 of them lined up, couldn't even get to all of them yet. I'm telling people, you're going to have to just sit there and wait. I can't make it there. You have to expose yourself to these gruesome scenes for hours and hours and hours, which where most people would see it and then leave and then call the authorities. Or like me, the person dies and then we bag and tag and send to the morgue. You know, you're, you're exposing yourself to these gruesome, horrifying ends for people every day, hours on end. And, and at the time, I took pride in that. I took pride in being able to do what nobody else could do or was willing to do or wanted to do. Um, I took pride in going to a scene where if I pulled up and saw all the first responders were outside throwing up in the bushes and I would walk in with a smile on my face and do my job and be just fine. Over years and years and years, I realized that if I closed my eyes, I was seeing one death scene after another death scene. I couldn't get past the images and it was time to like you know what i need to set this circus down i need to find out um i took some time and sat down um, because you know i wasn't a spring chicken anymore and you know it felt like a late midlife crisis of what do i do now um, i've always loved what nature has to offer for my survival days and how much money that we spend on pharmaceuticals and pesticides and herbicides and yet there's wonderful medicines that's growing in our yard that's always fascinated me um, i have some family members that are walking pharmacies that don't know what time of the day it is and have so many ailments i'm like i don't i think the last 12 medications you've gotten prescribed were side effects from the previous 20 that you have. I don't even know if anyone knows what's actually wrong with your body at this point because it's just so pounded with all these medicines. It scares me if I see a prescription med medicine on a commercial and they talk about two or three benefits for this medicine, consult your physician, blah, 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 blah. And for the next 10 minutes, it's all these nasty side effects. I'm like, what? That sounds worse than the actual reason you'd take the medicine. You know, hundreds of thousands of years, humans have been using natural and holistic alternatives to medicine that were fine and they were working. And so uh, What happened is that you couldn't mass produce it. It led me into that wanting to get into a indigenous aspect. What is, I want to know about herbalism and healing medicine that's not tainted. Take me to the source. That's my investigative. That's, I want to hear everyone's story and then pick apart the similarities between their stories to find out what the base truth is. 
And the way for me to do that was to go back and look at indigenous peoples from across the world and like, wow, you didn't know this tribe existed and you didn't know this tribe existed, but you guys all use the exact same leaf for this ailment. Awesome. I feel like I'm at the center of truth here. And that led me to that as you're spending time with them, researching them, you can't help but understand that they've got very interesting spiritual beliefs. And there was a uh, Dr. Alberto Velardo. Um, he's a neuroscientist. He was the first Westerner to ever be invited um, into the Andes and to train with actual the shamans. And he had talked with them. He is an official recognized shaman with them. And he does a lot of outreach work for people like myself that are concerned about healing now. I've spent the whole part of my life learning how to kill people in the military and learning how to pronounce people after the military. I'd like to come full circle and heal people and do so by using my investigative techniques. If I can extract information that's really going on that you are not saying for the purpose of investigation, why can't I do that to find out what you're not saying in order to heal you? And asking the questions that we don't want to ask, that we're too scared to ask. Why it is that we fear death? Why do we do what we do? Why is it that some people fear death and others embrace it? Is that a purpose type thing? How do they think about death? And you start to develop a new persona. And that becomes my new mission. I trade one for another. But that Dr. Villardo um, had asked him, you know, hey, you know, you guys live, you, you tend to only live in, to be in your mid-60s. Um, and you're only doing this healthy, holistic medicine. You're not taking pharmaceuticals, but yet they don't have any of the ailments that we have as Westerners. They don't have the cancers and the stuff. And their first response was, we don't eat the processed food and fast food and stuff that you guys eat. Everything we eat, we grow right here. We're not spraying gardens, so we don't have herbicides and pesticides in our water and all this stuff that's getting our fruits and vegetables. It's still as close to natural as possible. So we don't have those ailments. He said, yeah, but you guys also die in your mid-60s, whereas we can live to our 80s and 90s and 100 in the United States. And their response was, no, you don't live any longer than we do. And I was like, what? What do you do? Yes, you die at 60. We live to 90. That's kind of a textbook average. Yes, we do. He's like, no, you don't. All you've done is extended the morbidity years. Because when we die from whatever natural causes, we were still able to do everything that we wanted to do the day before. And for us, as Westerners, think about your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. You're using a cane. You're on oxygen. You're taking medicines. You've had hip replacements, knee replacements. You're not able to do the stuff that you're able to do. So have we really extended life? Or have we just extended the morbidity years? And that type of philosophy that I was finding in a lot of indigenous people's groups and their shaman stuff really allowed me to focus like that's the knowledge I want to have. I want to be able to see those things from your eyes and use my ability to talk with people, to read people, to find out what is truly going on and be able to use that as wonderful medicine. And he had asked the, one of the shamans there in, in the Andes, you know, how do you feel about Western medicine? Well, this shaman had responded and said, I think there's a real need for Western medicine. We don't dispute it. And I was blown away by that. 
I'm like, what? I would have thought most of the herbalists that I know um, are anti-pharmaceutical. They're only natural. And that's, they saw that there's a need for that type of real medicine. And they're like, let me put that into context for you to understand. Let's say you get bit by a venomous snake. You get bit by a venomous snake. You don't come to a shaman for anti-venom. Go to your doctor and get anti-venom to take care of it. You come to see a shaman to find out why the snake bit you. And that was just mind-blowing. I'm like, that's what I'm missing from my apothecary. Is I want to be a spot where you can come to, hypothetically, for anti-venom, you know, for healing. But more importantly, to get to the root cause. I want to cure. I don't want to treat. That's what I do with this herbal business is not just give you an herb to help you relax or help you focus or help with an inflammation or a pain or an ailment. I want to get to the root cause of it. And let's address that. Death is coming for all of us. I like to think um, you you had a, a guest on that was a Reiki practitioner. I'm also a Reiki practitioner and I love Reiki. Um, I love working with chakras also. It's wonderful. Shamans do that. In fact, in a shamanic death ceremony, they will take a rattle and go through all of your chakras and reverse the chakra flow. So they go counterclockwise to release your spirit through all the chakras and send it back to the all-encompassing energy, this universal life force, which is what Reiki is based off of. Tapping into the universal life force, allowing yourself to ground, Roots come out of your feet, connect with all the roots of the trees and the plants and feel this wonderful, powerful life force energy where you're connected to all things. Not let it drain you, but let it flow through you and taking the opportunities. This is something you had asked me before when we first talked about what kind of stuff would I, what tidbit would I, why leave for the listeners and doing, don't put things off. Think of it right now. As much as people I'm sure that are listening to this podcast have some fixation on death as a topic, imagine right now we're already gone. We're in some weird little plane, the in-between phase of whatever's next, whether there's an up or a down or whether some electric force that we go back and just become part of a force. Whatever it is that you believe in, imagine that the death is already over. What would your regrets be? Does your family and your friends know how you feel about them? Was there something on your quote-unquote bucket list that you didn't get to? What would that be? Because if you've got a long list of those, you're going to fear death. It's going to consume you, and you're not going to live. Fear doesn't prevent death. It prevents life. And, and, and taking, taking that thought process and doing it, because you know what? Poof, genie in a bottle. Neither one of us are gone right now, Julia. And the listeners that are listening to us are not gone. Don't put things off. Uh, I'll do it later. I'll do it when I get off work. I'll do it when I get home. I'll do it next week. None of us know our expiration date. Now, that doesn't mean go out and be an adrenaline junkie and I'm going to go zip lining and jump out of helicopters um, because I want to live life to the fullest. No. Sitting in the woods for an hour and just listening, unplugging from social media and everything that's going on and just connecting with nature and being at peace for a minute, collecting your thoughts, understanding who you are, are where you want to go. Life is not just about the journey yet to take. It's also about the true understanding of the one you've just taken. That's, I think that's the core of getting to what we fear and help us create wonderful connections and live our purpose. Whatever creator or creation um, belief that people have, 
I think we're all here for a specific reason. Whoever, whatever created us, they created you, which means that all these people, something was still missing that you and you alone could add to it, that I and I alone could add to it. So when I think about all these horrific, intense experiences that is baggage, that's tough, at a certain point in time, I had to come to that, you know what, there's a reason that I had to do that. So I have a very unique and interesting perspective. And so that I can help people, so that I can talk to them and get to the root cause and not giving answers or telling people what to do, to give you questions, to have you ask yourself, why this? So that you can heal yourself the way the human body is designed to do, is to heal itself. Right before I decided to get into this I'm going to commit full-time to this apothecary. Um, I knew that I could no longer carry my baggage around. I couldn't keep tripping over it. It's time to set these bags down, unpack them. There's nothing you can do about all the, the tough stuff and the craziness and the hard times that came along that were exterior factors. They had to happen for you to be exactly who you are right now. I'm, I'm glad that everything happened the way that it did so that it can put me in a position to have such a wonderful perspective and to hopefully be able to, to reach people. So, um, yeah, I think you're about to say, how can people get, a hold how can of people reach you? <laughs> yeah. How can they, how can they connect with you? How can we order from your apothecary? Because I'm not a tech savvy guy. Um, and I try to do as much stuff as I can on my own, um, the website is divinetribeapothecary.com. Um, there's still things I'm putting up and I take down, I put up and take down. So one minute is published, the next minute is not published. So be patient if you're wanting to visit that. Um, there's also things, not just herbs um, that you can get, but actual one-on-one -on -one time where we can talk. That can be booked there also. Um, but like you... Um, I've been working on a podcast that talks about the questions and not just death, but talks about life. Where can we listen to this podcast? Um, it'll be Spotify. I, I use Anchor as a platform and they just put it out on Spotify, Apple, all that other stuff. Um, I think the first episode of that comes out this weekend. So it's like you're right at the very forefront of that. What's it called so we can search for it? I'll link it in the show notes as well. Divine Tribe Apothecary. Awesome. I can't wait to listen. <laughs> Is there, what about Instagram? That's how I found you. How can people connect to you there? So Instagram, I've got, it's listed under Papa Joe Oakenthorn. I love it. Well, Joe, thank you so very much. I'm so glad we talked about everything and not just the death investigator aspect, because I think that the, the journey that you're on now is even more beautiful and special. And I can't wait to check out your podcast, go look at um, the things that you offer and share them with, you know, our community here. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Um, I think you're doing some amazing groundbreaking work with this. Thank you so much, Joe. Huge thank you to Joe for not only sharing about his experience as a medical legal death investigator, but how his closeness with so much death has affected his life and really helped him find his purpose as an herbalist and a healer. I feel like I learned so much in this interview with Joe. I learned about aqueous fluids. I learned about 
ways to determine cause of death, but more importantly, we learned how Joe used his experiences to really shift his goals in life and learn about the holistic, natural way to heal ourselves because after all, that's what we're designed to do. I will link Joe's social media, his podcast, and his website in the show notes for you to check out at your leisure. And I ask that if you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and leave a review. It really does help us. If you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would like to share your story or be on the show, please email your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. The more we talk about death, the more we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. And the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives that we still have yet to live. And as Paracelsus stated, all that man needs for health and healing has been provided by God in nature. The challenge of science is to find it. We'll see you next week.